Turn in your Bibles to Romans 7. The bulletin tells you that we're going to read verses 7 through 14. We're actually going to read 1 to 14, but we'll focus our attention on verses 7 uh, to 14. The place this fits in the book of Romans is that Romans has stated very clearly our need for a, a righteousness with God that comes through faith and not the law. We're all under the guilt and condemnation of sin. And we're all under its corruption and power, enslaved to it by nature. But Christ has come to intervene. And what He does to intervene with the guilt and condemnation of sin is He takes the condemnation and the guilt of sin from us. Uh, God, fancy theological word, is imputes. He transfers from us our sin and guilt and puts it on Christ. And Christ willingly is punished for our sin. That's what He accomplishes on the cross. The real, true wrath of God and punishment for your sin was punished in Jesus on the cross and it is settled. In its place, God takes the righteous obedience of Jesus and transfers it to you so that you stand before God pleasing to Him and completely righteous in His sight. And so if that's true... Paul asks the question that you might ask. If really that kind of grace is given to us and we're righteous with God apart from law, apart from works, apart from anything that we do, why not just continue to live in sin so that that grace can abound and overflow to us? And so Paul spends Romans 6 and 7 talking about why that doesn't work, why that can't happen in your life. And he says it's because sin leads to death and you don't have to stay in death. You don't want to. Sin leads to slavery, and you're not a slave anymore. And no one wants to be a slave. But chiefly the reason, we saw last time, is that you have a relationship to Jesus. You're connected to Him in a real way that resembles marriage more than any other relationship that, it could, that they could use, and that Paul could use. And so he wants you to understand that if you're married to Christ and you see what He's done for you, it wins out of you a love for Him that's expressed in obedience. Well, we come to the next part of that passage where we see why it has to be a relationship with Christ. And it's because the law cannot overcome your rebellion. The law cannot deal with your sin. Only a relationship with Christ can. Before we read, let's pray that God would bless the time we spend in His Word. Our Father in Heaven, Your Word is truth. It is completely and utterly dependable. And what we are about to read is as if you had spoken it from heaven itself. We pray you would give us ears to hear. And then help us to meditate and chew upon and and take in as our soul's nourishment the word you speak. We pray that you would make this passage in Romans 7 lead us to Jesus, who is a great Savior. That you would fill us with faith and repentance and that you would transform us because of the few moments we spend looking at what you have said to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 7, verse 1. This is God's Word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, 
she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is God's Word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. When I start a sermon, I like to start with an illustration that helps us feel our need for the text. It's sort of my strategy, at least in part. And, and often, I recognize that I've maybe told an illustration that you have to stretch to try to fit, maybe. You know, looking for one. Uh, this passage... The, the hard part was not finding one, but choosing only one. Uh, there are many, many, many occasions. So I decided I'm just going to restrict myself to this week uh, of things. And on Thursday, I had the chance to go with Evelyn and Maggie to see Wicked in New Orleans. Musical, it's great, uh, really fun. And as we were sitting in the theater, and we were uh, waiting for everything to start just a couple of minutes before showtime. We're like, let's get a picture of us sitting in our seats. And we asked someone next to us to take the picture. And after the first time the flash went off, an usher ran over. No pictures, no pictures. Now, let's just be honest. We weren't taking it of the stage or during the show. I understand the rules. You know, they don't want you to, to record the show and, and, and be able to share something you paid for with people who didn't. I get it. We weren't even doing that. We were taking a picture back of us away from everything. And, you know, it's not like that the theater has top secret technology, you know, that some terrorist is going to want to see. We're not in the Pentagon. It didn't make a ton of sense to me to say you can't take pictures. Um, but it was their theater. And they get to set the rules. And let's, let's just go one step further. Uh, it's, my response to it was especially aggravating. Uh, they told me not to take pictures, and my response was, oh, really? Watch this. You know, I'm ready to pull out my phone and take pictures of everything. This response says, you know, thanks for laughing. It's a curse. The, the something to me that said, I, I, just, I don't like that rule. 
I didn't think it was right. And, and I don't think you should have any authority. Now, it, this is aggravated by particular things. Uh, all that day, we had wandered around the French Quarter, gone wherever we wanted. There were, there's literally, I, I guess, a hundred restaurants down there, and we could just pick any one we want, eat anything that we want. We had, uh, we're staying in a nice place. The, they weren't actually torturing us or anything. Uh, it was climate control. We were free from the weather. We were about to watch entertainment that, would, that was really brilliant and high forms of entertainment. It was a pretty good day, so it's not like I was being denied food or water. They had drawn one line. And I said, I don't even want that line. It's kind of like you get this, this sign that says don't step in the grass and you look around and put your foot in it. You, you see a, a sign that says do not enter. And you could walk by ten doors that don't interest you, but that door I want to go behind. There's something about an authority placed over me that makes me say, no, get off. I bet if you looked around in your life long enough, you'd find the same thing. You know, for, for me, it was kind of any rule. For Paul, he said it was coveting. He, he, he went by the first nine commandments, but got to number ten, and he said, when I read, don't covet, my heart said, oh, I refuse to submit to that. And it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You see, the law comes to expose sin. The law comes to expose sin. And so at some point in the law, maybe many of them, for me it's, it's almost any rule, it's going to expose this rebellion because your heart's going to say no to that rule. Now, just so that you know, I recognize that I, I dealt with a a kind of illustration that hits me, a few of you might be rule-keeping types, okay? So that you see a sign on the grass and the idea of sticking your foot in it is, is really horrendous. You know, I have to keep the rules. Well, let me describe how that looks for you. You have seen this in your parenting. Your child gets to a point and you say, would you like me to cut your meat for you? What do they say? No, I can do it. And they work and work and struggle and get a, a mangled up piece of meat and say, see? Well, we do the same thing. We hear the commandments of God and God says, trust me and I will do this for you. And we say, no, I can do it. And I won't covet and, and I won't step foot on that grass that says don't step foot and I won't take pictures in the theater and I won't do anything and I will be a good person but I will do it and we say no to God it's the same rebellion and we say no no to this authority over us because we want to be autonomous and the law comes to expose that the law comes to confront your sin because you see we can live quite happily with our sin hidden underneath uh, until the law says that's sin and we say oh really What's this? I'll do it more. We can live quite happily in our sin. But you might say, so, you know, if I'm, I'm living and I'm, I'm committing these sins kind of quietly and, and, and not worried about them and I don't feel bad over them, and the law comes to confront it and, and to say, okay, well, well, I can fix this. 
And so here's what I do. I go, all right, this sin says that I shouldn't be selfish. I'm going to stop being selfish. I'm going to be real giving and caring. And I'm going to give myself to people. And I'm going to be, you know, really generous. And here's what I've done. I said, I, I don't want to, be, to think of myself as selfish. I want to think of myself as good. And so I've traded one sin, my selfishness, for another one, my pride. And that's really what we do. I trade one sinful addiction, the addiction to my, my reputation, the addiction to pride, the addiction to an immorality, and I trade it in for another one that makes me feel a little better about myself or makes me have a better view that other people think of me. And, and really, that's all I can do with the law. If all I have is God's commands, all I can do is exchange one sin for another. So the person who struggles with pornography knows that it's wrong. And so they say, I'm going to get someone to help me with this. And, and, and they're going to monitor the places where I can look at pornography. And now the only reason I don't is I don't want them to think bad of me. And I've exchanged pride for my addiction before. You, you see what's going on. Is uh, the law says your sin, your immorality, it's wrong. So I go, okay, well, then I'll stop. And then it says, now you're thinking about yourself is wrong. All right, well, I'll stop. Now your, your sense of reputation for other people is wrong. Ah, and I keep turning to new things. And the law keeps pointing it out. No, that's not enough. No, that's not enough. No, that's not enough. You see the idea. If I am a liar, I realize that that hurts my relationships and I want these relationships, so I'll stop lying, but not because it honors God. I stop lying because I want people to like me. And all I've done is exchange one God for another. That's all the law can help us do. The law cannot overcome sin. Look what he says in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You know that commandment that said, if you keep going in your coveting, if you keep going in your lying, if you keep going in your grief, it's going to kill you. So you say, okay, I've got to stop. But it turned out I couldn't stop. I just exchanged for another sin, and it was death too. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. Because all we're doing is exchanging strategies to keep God from being our Lord. I can do it. Or I'm going to rebel because I don't like your authority. Either one of those is a strategy to keep Jesus at a distance. And that's what we do when the law comes. The law, though, isn't our problem. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Was it the commandment that brought this death? No. By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good. Now, this is a, a, a piece of, of doctrine, a teaching from the Scriptures that's going to unlock your experience of the world for you. Here's what it means. Because of sin, 
you and I take every good thing in our life and we twist it into rebellion. Because of our sin, we take every good thing that God gives us and we twist it into this rebellion against Him. God gives us money. Money is a good thing. It's a tool for us to be generous to other people. Money is a way for us to meet our needs and to even, in some ways, rejoice because we can use money to to buy things that are are pleasant. Money is a good thing. But we take it and we make it out to be an ultimate thing. We take it to become the thing that we live for and all of a sudden it it becomes this perverse thing in life. Okay? You you see that. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We see it everywhere in us. How about this one? Family. Family is a good thing. The Bible says children are heritage to the Lord, from the Lord. It's a gift from God. Family is a good thing. And so we take this good thing and we're thankful for it, but then we turn it into an ultimate thing. And I measure how important I am and how good I am and, and what kind of person I am based on how my kids do. And I put this burden on them to perform so they can make me feel good. And they become tools in my life to serve this idol. You see, my sin takes every good thing that God puts in my life and twists it and distorts it. So that when the law comes and says, here is something beautiful, it's a way of life. And I go, watch this, crinkle. And I tear it up. That's what sin does. Sin causes you to take everything that you have in your life and distort it. It tells us that the externals of our life, the commands, the rules, the things that are around us, the circumstances we live in, they aren't our problem. Sin is our problem. Paul David Tripp is a a pastor and a counselor, and uh, he put a a blog up on the Internet and said uh, this. It It was really good insight. He was talking about the prayer that David prayed after his sin was found out with Bathsheba. And it said in the psalm, create in me a clean heart. That was his prayer. But Paul David Tripp says he, he didn't ask for God to get rid of, of attractive and beautiful women because they weren't his problem. Even though that was the occasion of his sin with Bathsheba, that wasn't his problem. His problem was his heart. And what I want you to see is, is that's what this passage is really driving at. It is not that there's some externals about your behavior that you need to fix. Stop lying. Stop coveting. It is that your heart takes every good thing and distorts it and twists it. And the only hope is rescue and salvation. And the law can only expose the distortion. It cannot save you. Alright, let me make a couple of quick applications about this. Let me give you one that that I think is significant for us uh, that doesn't that may not seem obvious at first, but let's take this passage and apply it to parenting. How we parent. First thing, don't be surprised when your kids rebel. That rebellion is in their hearts. It's in their hearts because they're related to Adam and they're related to you. And and, and so they've got this rebellion. So we all, that first time, get surprised when they're holding their cup out over the side of the of the high chair, and you say, don't you drop that, and they look you right in the eye, open the hand. And we're like, I can't believe you just did that. Paul does it, and you do it. 
We look God in the eye and say, you said don't covet, watch me covet. You said don't take pictures, watch me take pictures. It doesn't matter, we do it. And so don't be surprised when your children rebel. But here's another aspect of that. You need to think carefully, parents, about the rules you give your children. Because they're sinners. They're going to press against those rules. And if you make arbitrary rules that don't matter, you're creating opportunities for them to rebel. Think carefully. You want your rules to to be the ones that deeply matter. Think about it before you make rules for your children. Because you're there to try to help them follow Jesus, not just change their behavior. But here's even more, much more significant than the rules that you give them in their household is the relationship that you have. The law that you give your children, the rules that you establish for them in their homes, cannot save them. But the relationship with Jesus can. And they will learn relationship from you the same way they learn rules from you. Your relationship to your children matters much, much more than the rules that you set do. Does. Whatever the game is. The, the picture I want you to get is that you want to think if the gospel says to you the law can't save you, your connection to Christ, you're being married to Him the way it said at the beginning of Romans 7. You're being connected to Him through faith and seeing His salvation to you. If that's what can save you, then that's what can lead your children to life. Your relationship with them will matter more than your rules. Let me give one for just sort of your personal heart. Listen to this passage and recognize the depths of the effects of sin on you. Sin has affected you more deeply than you care to imagine. Uh, one pastor would say it this way, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. But God's grace is better than you think it is. You need grace, not some good advice. You need God's mercy to overcome this debt to sin, not just some rules. And so here's the last application. Make knowing Christ your ultimate goal, not a change in your behavior. If all you do is change your behavior a little bit and work real hard to do that, all you're doing is taking something good and twisting it into something that can't save you and a distortion. Your behavior change is just exchanging one strategy of rebellion against God for another. But, if you make your goal knowing Christ, it'll change your behavior. If you get to know this Jesus who said, I want you. I want to draw near to you. I want to be in your life. I want to love you. Then that will change why you do what you do. It will change what you do. And so make it your goal to know his love for you. Because it's the only thing that will work. The law can't save you. But Christ can. It's an illustration that I know I've told before. But it's worth it again. There was a, a man who had, had uh, recently gotten married. And his wife, who had been unfaithful to him in their engagement, was feeling especially convicted. And, and now that they were married, 
And she kept this hidden from him. It was a burden she couldn't bear and she felt like she needed to confess it. But she was terrified of what might happen. With encouragement from a friend, she told him what had happened. And she said, I've been faithful to you since then, but you have to know. And without a word, he walked out of the room. And she was crushed. Her worst fears seemed confirmed. She began to weep alone, newly wed, and it seemed everything was broken. About two hours later, he came back with a box. And in the box, he said, open it. And it was a a beautiful white nightgown. And he said, I want you to wear this every night. Because I want you to know, this is how I see you. I see you clean. I see you as my pure bride. And I want you to never think about that stuff again. I want you to see, he could have said, we're going to have some rules so that I can trust you. But it wouldn't have changed how she felt. But what he did was said, listen, you got me. And what Christ says, I can give you rules, but they won't change you. But you get me. That's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see that we have Christ and that we wouldn't turn our trust upon the law, upon our ability to keep it, that we would not have the childish independence of saying, I can do it. But rather, we would be childlike in our dependence, casting ourselves on you and saying, I cannot do it. Help me. And that we would see we have Jesus and we are connected to Him as as a bride. And that He has made us pure and that we can live in that security and in His love. And it is the one thing that can change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.